0: Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts.
1: Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk.
0: Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised.
1: Cyber security breach at Equifax could
0: affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host... Nexus IT Group. Welcome to Hacked Into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders. Today we are joined by Franklin Mosley. Franklin is a public speaker and application security futurist. He's spoken at conferences across the U.S. on topics like DevSecOps, application security, finding unicorn cybersecurity talent. He's an open source researcher, penetration tester, and application security
1: evangelist. Great to have you on, Franklin. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, Ben, for inviting me. Um, Looking forward to a uh, great conversation. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Let's kick things off by learning a little bit more about your background, career progression,
1: how you got into cybersecurity. Well, let me say uh, my uh, journey started uh, actually not in cybersecurity, but actually being a uh, software engineer. Uh, Coming out of college, spent a few years uh, writing software, testing software. And uh, that was, you know, that was my passion. Uh, It's always been my my passion Uh, ever since I was a a young child. When I first touched a Commodore VIC-20, then got a TI-99 in my house, I started writing uh, basic code, and I knew that I wanted to one day grow up and be a software developer, a computer programmer. But then one day I got a call about a security job, and I was kind of questioning whether or not uh, I wanted to go down that path. And at this time, you know, cybersecurity wasn't as big as it is now. This is around uh, 2001, so it wasn't really top of mind. But I took a chance and I just jumped into it. It sounded interesting. I always was kind of interested in hacking and that whole cybersecurity space. And then I got into it, and then been in it for like the last 16 years, and have held many different positions within cybersecurity, uh, doing access controls, identity access management, uh, biometrics, voice, and finger, fingerprint, and even uh threat intelligence. But I always wanted to kind of go back to the software side of things. Um, so then at one point I just pivoted and I decided application security would be my focus. And it allowed me to kind of just combine my, my two passions, my passions I've always had for developing software and this newfound passion I've had in uh, cybersecurity. And I think that is just a, a great fit for uh, somebody with my skill set, And that's where I've been for the last several years. And really, in particular, the last couple of years, um, implementing security into that DevOps space. And I think we're probably going to touch on that a little bit later on. But uh, that's kind of just a, a little bit about my journey and how I got here.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Definitely sounds good. Well, let's hop right in. Uh, you know, don't want to beat up the Equifax issue too, too much. Love to put that to bed, but uh, you know, sounds like the, the problem they experienced stemmed from a, a known vulnerability in an open source framework that you know, failed to be patched. Yeah, I was curious if you had any thoughts or suggestions on potential processes that can be put in place to you know help organizations make sure that this does not happen, specifically in in complex environments with lots of open source technologies.
1: Sure, I think the Equifax Act is just a reminder of how much uh, open source software components are making their way into our applications. A uh, recent study indicated that up to uh, 80% of our applications are composed of open source components and only 10 to 20% are composed of custom code. Now, majority of the vulnerabilities will be found in the custom code portion of the application, but it's just as important that we track our open source components in third party libraries as well. Uh, this is something that we've known about for a while, even going back into the OWASP top 10 in 2013, number nine on that list was using components with no vulnerabilities. So open source is is great. There's nothing wrong with it. It offers uh, tremendous benefits to uh, traditional and agile application development, such as faster development time and cost savings. And we think about uh, the pressures our developers are under. They're They're under pressure to deliver features quickly and on time. Open source software helps them to achieve those goals. But yeah, I remember, too, using those components and putting them into your, in, in your software is kind of like this pull methodology. You have to stay on top of making sure that those components are kept up to date, that when uh, vulnerabilities or updates are announced, that you are pulling down the latest version into your, your application. So it's on a pull operation versus may, maybe a, a push methodology that you get out of commercial software where those updates are pushed down to you. So what, application, what companies need to do is get an inventory of the components that are in their applications, kind of a bill of materials. You need to get visibility into your component supply chain, and you need to keep that bill of materials up to date and constantly checking that against things such as the National Vulnerability Database. And once you've found that a component is vulnerable, you need to have processes in place to assess whether or not your application is affected whether or not your application is affected is is based off of different things. One, is this a active library or active component of your application? Is this component utilized within your application? Is there a path through your application to where that potential vulnerability exists? And then, based on the vulnerability and the rating of that vulnerability, you must assess when or how quickly you need to take action to remediate that issue. So you need to have these kind of processes in place. So when something like the uh, vulnerability in Apache Struts was announced, you and your team are aware of whether or not that is in your software supply chain. Are you affected? And then how to remediate it? How quickly to act? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds great. Sounds like a
0: lot of takeaway there for you know, highly complex environments. DevSecOps is, is something that's fairly new. You know, new for for me. You know, DevOps seems like something that uh, you know some organizations are still just now getting a a hold of and moving forward with, and, and some more laggard, not even bringing in that DevOps culture. So yeah, I'd love the opportunity to learn more about DevSecOps and how it can be implemented into an environment, potentially environment that's already running quite
1: agile. Oh, that's a great question. So basically, the agile development methodology had been widely adopted, making development more iterative, releases more frequent but it was causing bottlenecks to appear in the rest of the application deployment and support processes. So you need to come up with a way to not only develop the software quickly, but also a way to deploy it just as fast. So that basically, DevOps was people working together with a common set of tools and goals to achieve the best possible customer experience. It was the developers operations teams coming together, kind of breaking down that wall of confusion and working in these cross-functional teams. So this DevOps movement was about, you know, the culture, it's about automation, you know, measurement and sharing. So working together with minimal barriers and this allowed for improved communication and collaboration and increased agility. So as organizations were moving to DevOps to achieve this uh, improved efficiency, quality, and cost savings in software delivery, that resulted in faster delivery of features and functions. They started to realize rising importance of security. So they wanted to maintain the pace of delivery while also reducing their risk of losing revenue and reputation. They uh, realized that traditional security methods didn't fit. They could be inhibitor to DevOps agility, and they wanted to find ways to incorporate security while maintaining that DevOps process. So hence we came up with DevSecOps. So, essentially, DevSecOps was the automation of security tasks by embedding these security controls and processes into the DevOps workflow. Gotcha. Definitely makes sense. Now, in your perspective
0: and experience, do you think that there are ever times where DevSecOps is not the answer in a DevOps environment or in an already agile environment?
1: No. I think DevSecOps is the answer. If you're doing DevOps, you need to be doing DevSecOps. If you're doing traditional security and still trying to do DevOps, then you're basically you're you're inhibiting your DevOps processes from really reaching their full potential, and you're not going to be able to mature within your DevOps. So security must adjust to the DevOps workflow. So DevSecOps, I think, must occur if you're going to be doing DevOps. You can't have DevOps and traditional security. The two won't work together because you will have these constant roadblocks that will slow down the process, and you won't get the full benefits of what DevOps promises.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, that definitely brings up a, a question for me. When you are either you know training an individual to function in a DevSecOps environment or you bring in someone on, you know, what type of background do you look for? Do you look for somebody that's a, a DevOps person that can contribute to the, the security side of DevSecOps? Or do you look for somebody that's a classically trained security professional that you, needs to, to learn and get accustomed to DevSecOps environment?
1: i would uh, bring in someone that comes more from the devops or the software development background you think about what we're doing in devops most of we're delivering you know software and i think it really helps if someone has that software background or that devops background traditional security people and you gotta remember i started off in traditional it security some of us well some of them are still stuck in the old mentality of how we used to do things but you got to remember, too, you know, business was done differently. What we operated was differently. We kind of had like this mentality that there's a perimeter and we must protect the perimeter. And business is now done where there is no perimeter. We have the cloud. We have mobile. So I think someone coming from that more traditional security background is less likely to be able to adjust their mentality to the uh, DevOps world, the DevOps processes. I think someone coming from DevOps or a software background knows how software is being made how software is being delivered and can really integrate into those processes. So it's a matter of really kind of just training them up on the security side of things and then putting the two together and then they can implement uh, DevSecOps. And part of uh, DevSecOps is that automation of a security task. So, I think someone with uh, those particular skill sets within uh software development can provide additional skills that uh, maybe your traditional security person will not to be able to tie those security tasks together within that automated workflow
0: yeah, absolutely. it definitely makes sense that pivots you really perfectly and in the next section of this conversation here, and we're talking about your know, cybersecurity talent and the talent pool and you know, unicorn talent, which you've spoken on at uh, many DevOps days. So, next question I, I had would you know, be a little bit more towards that application developer and, and moving into a software side. And, and I know you've made it public what you think about this, but curious what you know, what it looks like at a little bit deeper level. So, you know, would you rather teach a, a security person software processes or teach an application developer security, and you know, why is that, and, and you know, what are ways that that we can do that effectively.
1: Well, I'd rather teach a uh, software person uh, security versus teaching a security person uh, software. I think with some of our security professionals, they're looking at more of at the end of the software development life cycle you know, the testing phase and then in the operations phase, putting in uh, compensating controls such as like web application firewalls, intrusion detection systems, intr- intrusion protection systems, kind of more of that bolting security on where our whole goal is to build security in. So if I take someone who has a you know, software background that knows that software development lifecycle. I think I have a better shot of being able to build security in to get us as security people involved earlier in the process to make sure that we're developing requirements, security requirements, and getting those built in, doing proper design reviews, code reviews. So when we talk about this whole shifting left, I think that a person with a software background will be able to make that transition a little bit easier. Part of my talk, I talk about like this builder breaker mentality. And I think a good application security person has both builder in the sense that they're building security in, but then the breaker mentality of being able to think like an attacker and be able to attack software to find those weaknesses, to be able to exploit holes in the software. So someone coming from a software background, I think they already have that builder mentality. It's a matter of just training them up on the breaker side of things to teach them how to potentially exploit weaknesses in the software. So knowing how it is actually composed, you can maybe think about where those holes may lie within the application
0: yeah absolutely and that definitely brings up another topic altogether and you know within that that side so if we we're wanting our, our application developers to you know write secure code and, and identify vulnerabilities and, and think like a hacker do you think that in an enterprise setting it's worth the time and, and you know, monetary investment and you know, teaching application developers how to you know how to hack how to be on the other side of it at what level will that be
1: able to impact their ability to truly write secure code? No, I think that's something that you should definitely spend time doing, teaching them how to hack. I think by actually demonstrating how simple it is to break code, it will actually make developers want to write more secure code. It will make them want to protect and defend. It can actually get them excited about learning secure software development practices. So ways to do that, do a lunch and learn with your developers and show them a simple exploit, show them a simple SQL injection attack or a simple cross-site scripting attack and show them how easily that can be uh, done within one of your applications if it's not properly secured with best practices. Then take it a step further and maybe use some gamification type of learning where you actually hold a capture the flag type of competition internally within your organization. So a capture the flag competition is where you have flags that are hidden within your application and you have to exploit the application in certain ways to obtain these flags, and then you submit them for points. And I think that's another way where you can then capitalize on training them how to hack to be able to feed that back into them writing more secure code.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Make it a little competition, get people excited that way. That
1: sounds uh, That sounds fun. You ever been a part of anything like that? Oh, I love um uh, play CTFs. I play CTFs pretty regularly. I love the competition of it. I love the challenge of it. Actually are in the process of uh, holding a a CTF internally at an organization I'm involved with now. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, great.
0: That that, uh, definitely is helpful. I think that overall shift, that mentality shift, instead of produce, get it out, let's let's get this thing live and and moving more towards that mental shift of how can we really write safe code. I think it all comes down to being able to see from the other side what what someone could be looking at. And I think that's some great ideas on, on how we can do that. Now, pivoting a little bit, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your conversation that that you've had on finding unicorn cybersecurity talent. I think that that is definitely one of the biggest topics within within the space right now. and, And with all these issues popping up, it's definitely at the top of mind for business leaders. First off, when it comes to indispensable skill that a security professional has is there one thing that you can put your finger on that is the you must have skill in order to be
1: a, a top-notch security professional number one i think it is the ability to continue to develop and grow to have this uh, growth mindset and the reason i say that is because you know having technical skills and talent i think that's a great starting point but we're in this uh, ever-changing threat landscape. So I think you need to have people in place that are able to stay on top of the latest threats to keep a current understanding of the vulnerabilities that exist and are willing and able to maintain awareness and knowledge of the latest standards and best practices. And I think having those skills will make you indispensable within the security profession. And We call it a security profession because it's not just a job. You you think about how we define uh, other professions like professional athletes. You know, that's their craft. That's their trade. They're always out there practicing, trying to get better. And I think as security professionals, we should be doing the same thing. So if you want to be indispensable within your organization as a security professional, you need to always be developing, learning, training and having knowledge of the current threat landscape.
0: Sure, absolutely. Now, do you have any suggestions for how people can stay to date with the the changing security landscape? Is that you know going to conferences, interacting on on Twitter? I know there's a big following of security profession on on Twitter and other you know areas. So, any suggestions or thoughts on how someone that is interested in cybersecurity can stay up to date and and current with what's going
1: on in the space? I think there are uh, several different paths. So, I'll just speak to. What I personally do, I actually utilize Twitter. I actually create a Twitter list and I have a feed going into that Twitter list of people that I respect within the cybersecurity industry and different uh, blog sites or, or, or websites, or news sites, specifically giving us cybersecurity news. And I look at that on a daily basis. In addition, I go to you know several local meetings and I, te- I speak with other cybersecurity professionals. I think that's also a great place to kind of just speak about things you're seeing within your organization and really see what other people are experiencing within the organization as well, and to exchange ideas, to have just conversation. They may expose you to things that you hadn't thought about or things that are going on that you weren't aware of. And also going to those conferences. I think going to conferences uh, can be great. If you have the funding within your organization to actually go attend conferences, please take advantage of that. I think going to those conferences, usually there are some great sessions there of some leading edge research. And also, again, at those conferences, it's a great place to network and exchange ideas in the same way that I was saying that you can go to local meetups or local meetings within your community. Sure.
0: Definitely makes sense. Um, now, one thing that that I hear over and over again from our clients that you know, need to bring on security professionals is the number one soft skill they're looking for is for that individual to be a problem solver. Now why do you think that 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 is the number one soft skill and you know how can someone share with a team that is hiring them that they are a problem solver and then on the other side, how can you identify a true problem solver in a interview process?
1: Well the reason I think it's a highly requested soft skill, at least in this space because we're in this ever-changing threat landscape like i just mentioned there are new problems every day and they're never the same problem over and over again so since we're facing new problems and they're ever changing you need someone that has those type of uh, soft skills or problem solving skills the skills to be able to assess the issue and to formulate plans that will help minimize the risk because of this ever-changing uh, threat landscape So how do you communicate that within an interview? You need to be prepared to talk about the challenges you have faced during the course of business. You know, how did you handle it? What were the pressures? How did you resolve it? Were you able to bring the proper parties together during that situation to be able to remediate the issue? And be able to speak to those, I think, will show that you have those problem-solving skills. If you can't speak to that, if you don't have experience in that, then maybe you don't have those problem-solving skills that are needed for the uh, opportunity at hand. Yeah, fair enough. Now, on
0: the other side of the, the table, the interview panel that is you know, assessing those problem-solving skills, you know, what, what should they be looking for in a candidate that shares that
1: ability to solve you know, complex problems? They should be asking probing questions, trying to get an idea of their mindset during that situation. Were they calm during the situation? Did they assess all the angles? Get all the proper input needed to come up with a proper solution? Were they able to communicate effectively throughout that problem? So ask the right questions, ask the probing questions, you know, dig deeper into the narrative that the candidate is giving to you. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely makes sense.
0: So we like to close off with an overrated, underrated segment, give you an opportunity to you know share a little bit more how you feel on a, a hot topic. So I'm going to share a topic with you. Simply need an overrated or underrated statement. If you want to share more about why you feel that way, floor is all yours. So let's get started with hiring malicious
1: hackers for internal roles, overrated or underrated? Underrated. I believe you can hire a malicious hacker. I believe they do have the capability of maybe taking off that black hat and put it on a, a white hat and, you know, their knowledge and skill set could be you know, utilized within an organization. So underrated. Okay. Gotcha.
0: Next is bug bounties, underrated or overrated?
1: Underrated. I believe underrated. bug bounties can be uh, beneficial to organization. I think it just helps to scale up your testing of your application from a security standpoint and allows you to assess what potential vulnerabilities or weaknesses do exist within your application. So I say underrated. Okay. Interesting. All right. And then
0: lastly, one that, that is close to your heart. So I think I know the answer already, but excited to hear what you, what you say. Biometrics, underrated or overrated?
1: Underrated. As we try to figure out how to identify and authenticate our, our users into our applications. We're increasingly trying to deploy uh, multi-factor authentication, and I think biometrics are a viable choice for a, a second factor. And you're seeing it you know, more and more now. As you know, Apple came out with their uh, iPhone with the Touch ID, and now they're trying to use uh, facial recognition. I think uh, biometrics can be beneficial in being that additional factor.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. iPhone's been a big one for that. I think there's there's quite a few
1: naysayers out there on uh, on what they're doing with facial recognition. Yeah. The facial recognition one, I'm not as sold on yet, but I do like how it started the conversation of uh, biometrics being in use as a uh, factor in authentication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Interesting.
0: All right. Great. Well, hey, Franklin, it's been fantastic. Great conversation. I'd love for my listeners to be able to you know find you. Where can they find you online? I know you're on Twitter.
1: Well, they can definitely find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is mosley 3 So that's F-P-M-O-S-L-E-Y-3. You can also uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Please connect with me there. My name on LinkedIn is Franklin Mosley. And uh, if you want to come out and actually have a conversation or attend uh, one of my sessions, my next session is actually going to be on October 10th. I'll be speaking at the improving offices in College Station, Texas, I'll be conducting a session there on AWS security. So we'll just be talking about kind of that uh, AWS security well-architected framework from the security perspective and some of the services, the key services in AWS to help you secure your application in the cloud.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a great conversation there. Yeah, it should be
1: good. Absolutely.
0: All right, Franklin. Hey, thanks so much. Do appreciate it. And yeah, thanks again. All right. Thank you, Ben. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.